Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. So we've spent the last two months contemplating the numerous ways that the Bible describes sinfulness. Again, many of you maybe are asking, what profit is it to talk so much about sin? And I would ask you to consider a, a saying that my mom used to always say. Make sure you wash behind your ears and between your toes. Yeah, it's a silly statement, but nonetheless, it's a true statement. See, I know that it sounds odd, but studying the Bible and what it says about sin helps us to recognize the depths of our own sin. The depths of our own sin. And the glories of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ become all the more beautiful as we contemplate our sinfulness. So as we move into our eighth week, we will focus on the concept of sin as pride. Sin is pride. And many of us would understand pride, yes, which is probably true. Yet often the only pride we see is in other people. If we are honest with ourselves, right, the last time you quoted Psalm sixteen eighteen that says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall, was not telling it to yourself, but telling it to that other person whom you saw a perceived pride in. We use it like a hammer to shatter that other person. But rarely do we bring it to mind when pride wears its ugly head in our own hearts. So, why is this the case that we so rarely see our own pride? It's very interesting. If you study the, the full concept of pride in the scriptures, it almost seems as if pride creates a trampoline around the soul. And that every sense of the God's word, instead of penetrating our own heart, it bounces off. Well, that's not me. Oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. Pride acts like a trampoline, rebounding the effects of God's word and the beauty of Christ, never allowing it to penetrate deeply into our own souls. And it seems if pride veils itself in a cloak of misplaced confidence in your own abilities, thereby removing any daily need of repentance, and definitely not that you need God every moment of every day. Pride tells you you are strong enough. Pride tells you you can do this all on your own. See, pride is one of the gravest of sins. Listen to this, because it actually requires little in the outside world to be tempted by it. Think about it, right? We're tempted to lust, not merely because lust exists in our hearts, but because we see that in the world around us. And so we're drawn to lust because of the things around us. We're drawn to gluttony because of the beauty and taste of food that's outside of us. We're drawn into greed because of the prestige of money. But pride doesn't need anything in the world to represent itself to you. It lives deep inside you and constantly is pushing away the things that God desires for you to know. Pride is the cry, I can, on my own. Pride is the wail of independence. Pride is the song of inner strength. Pride is the conscience screaming, I'm right. 
But worst of all, pride is the most significant preventer from us seeing the need of our salvation and also our daily sanctification. Even now, many of you are saying, why, Pastor Josh, are you harping on pride so much? I don't have a problem with pride. Well, the fact that you say I don't have a problem with pride indicates what? That you do. So, let us prayerfully consider the text of Luke 18 today. And I ask you this, and, and I mean this seriously, because in, in, in studying for this text and just the reality I know of my own life, pride is so deceptive. Pride is so ingrained into the deep crevices of our heart. So as we're studying God's word, I'm, I'm pleading with you in this moment, say, God, show me my pride through your word. So I'm just saying, God, continually, as, as we have pauses, just say that prayer in your head and in your heart. Say, God, show me my pride. God, show me my pride. And remember, sin is purposely, pride is purposely bending the focus away from self and the acknowledgement of your own guilt. That's what pride does. And only the glory and holiness of Christ can shatter that pride. So, if you're a note taker, we have three simple points today we see in our text. First, two types, two types of people, the proud and the despised. Two people we see in this parable Jesus is using, the proud and the despised. We see two types of prayer, a prayer of righteousness and a prayer for righteousness. Two key distinctions there. And last, we see two outcomes, justification and not. Justification and not. But, but before we really dig into those three main points, it just jumped out at me as I was studying this week. Look with me again at verse 9. Again, pay attention to the phrases here. He says, he, being Jesus, also told this parable, and look at this word, to. I found that very interesting that, that the word to is here. He doesn't use the word about or for. He says also this parable to some who trusted in themselves. And what I believe this is not the main point, obviously, but a very good implication for us. Jesus is setting an example for us to follow. See, one of the things about pride is if we can't see it, we need brothers and sisters in this church to expose it in our lives. And Jesus is saying this directly to the people he's addressing. He's looking at the proud person and using them as the example of his parable. That's why pride is one of the most dangerous aspects of our sinfulness because it's the one that so often we cannot see ourselves. And so Calvary, may we be a church who after removing the plank out of our own eyes goes and helps remove the speck of pride in our brothers and sisters' eyes. This also means that we cannot be those who talk about other person's pride, a.k.a. gossip or slander. But instead, through intentional prayer, may we address the pride we see in others. For often those people are unaware. First point. Two types of people. The proud and the despised. Looking back again at the text. Jesus speaking here in some parables. He says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men. Here we go. Two, two people Jesus is using in this parable. He says, went up to the temple to pray. One, the Pharisee, and the other, the tax collector. Now, one of the interesting things about these concepts, these two people, is if we've read the Gospels long enough, we've missed the weight and thrust of what he's doing in this moment. 
Because I, I know when I read the word Pharisee, I automatically have a despise for the Pharisee. Because I've read the Gospels enough. And I know Jesus typically despised the Pharisees. And so one of the things we need to do is we need to really think, okay, what is a Pharisee in this ancient Near Eastern culture? And a Pharisee is not someone who was disdained by people. They were actually revered by those around them. They were people who truly believed in God and loved his word. So much so that they desperately wanted to keep his law. There were others that would say, oh, there comes a Pharisee. One day I hope to be like the Pharisee. And so though we may have disdain for them, Jesus is using this Pharisaical person to help us understand a deeper concept. See, pride caused them to miss the point of the law, as we will see in a moment. We might describe the proud person in our context as someone who attends church regularly, who gives every time they come, who volunteers for every service function we have, and who simply seems like they have it always together. Sounds like some of us, doesn't it? But there's something to miss, and we'll see that in just a moment. The Pharisee is the one described in verse 9. Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The next character we see is the tax collector. We might call him the despised Derek. Again, tax collector is not something we're altogether familiar with. Though we'd have IRS agents and stuff, and I if I were to ask you if you're familiar or fun with our, you would simply say, no, not really. I'm not a fan of the IRS. But the disdain that the community had for the tax collector in this culture was heavy. He was seen as a betrayer of the people of Israel. There was Roman occupation in the land, right? And Rome taxed the people they occupied. And there was one or two, or depending on the region, there was one who said, I'll be the guy. I'll be the guy who collects taxes and gives it to Rome. Typically someone who was an Israelite. It's almost as if there was someone living in America right now, taxing us, and then sending it away to China. How would you feel about that person? Knocking on your door. I'm here to collect the taxes. But you know exactly where he's going to give it. He's an American and he's giving it to China. Helps us feel a little bit more of what the tax collector's mindset would be here. And how people would view this phrase, the tax collector. This would be someone seen as the worst of sinners. Filthy. Utterly looked down upon by others. And the reason this is so important is because what the prayers are going to do in just a second is really expose something deeper. One thing you do need to think about is, you know what, everyone is not like they seem on the outside. Not everyone is like they seem on the outside. But instead, there is a God who says, I search the hearts of people. I search the depths of your soul. And I truly know you for who you are. You can't put on a front with God. And this is why it's so important. Because the next section makes way more sense when we see how Jesus uses this parable. And he uses prayer. He uses prayer to kind of reveal the heart of these two men. Who outwardly are different than they may seem. One thing this is not saying is that your job now is to critique the prayers of others so that you can see deep into their soul. That's not the point of the text. Your job is not to critique the prayers of others so that you can see into the depths of their soul. 
He's using a parable, a story to bring about some truth that we can all glean great understanding from. Jesus uses these prayers to highlight his more profound concern. So let's look at the second point, primarily the two types of prayers. A prayer of righteousness and a prayer for righteousness. Look there again with the text in verse 2. 10, excuse me. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Let's look at the way he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. Do you find it interesting, his prayer? The way he prays, first off, he prays, God, thank you. So he has some acknowledgement that, that God ordainly works out things for his glory. That at some level he's either mocking God or he truly believes all that he is is from God. I tend to think it's probably that one. I think he really believed God was blessing him with all of these things. In such a way that he began to feel morally superior to others. You see, this was a prayer of righteousness. He thought he was righteous in and of himself. And it highlights some things here. First, it it highlights moral superiority that a proud person prays with an attitude of moral superiority. Excuse me. Look at some of the phrases he uses there. Again, in verse 11, extortioner, unjust, adulterers. These are moral failures according to God's law. But do you find it interesting? He says, I'm not that. The one thing he focuses on, brothers and sisters, it was he's not. You see, his gaze was always where? On someone else. His gaze was always on someone else. This is what pride does. It focuses our comparison of our sinfulness by looking at those around us. It loves to bolster your pride and prevent you from feeling any forms of guilt by saying, but you're not as bad as, or you're not just like, insert name there. Have you ever experienced pride showing itself in your life in this way? You see, this type of pride presents itself in two ways. Imagine a preacher is preaching a text from Luke 18, talking about pride, and conviction begins to set in, and the one thing you're doing is trying to say, man, I sure hope so-and-so is listening. Did that just happen to some of us? That's pride. Pride quickly wants to take God's word and God's conviction and rebound it out so that the focus isn't on you or your guilt, but on others and those around you. Or or maybe someone in the church has come to you about a sin. And you cannot even listen to them because pride is going, don't listen, but you do this, but you did that. That's pride. It's wicked. It prevents you from truly beholding the depths of your own sin, but also the glories of the gospel. 
Think about this. The last time you were in that fight or quarrel. And you did something ugly to your spouse or to your friend. Conviction began to set in. And immediately you wanted to say, well, if they hadn't done this or that, I would not have done this. That's pride. That's pride to divert all of your attention away from your own sins and focus on that which is around you. That's pride. This is what the Pharisee was doing here. He was not looking at his own sinfulness. I'm not like this one or this one or this one. And especially not like that one, that tax collector over there. I'm not that bad. It's pride rebounding the focus away from yourself and towards others. You focus on the sin of others because then it means maybe you won't experience guilt conviction. Though it's not in this text, I do think it important to help us also see that another way pride diverts our attention away to others is in the form of self-pity. It's not necessarily in this text, but it is in scriptures that we see this idea of self-pity. It does the same type of thing. God, I wouldn't have to steal if I had the riches of others. God, I wouldn't have to be lustful if I had the spouse of that person. God, I wouldn't have to blank if I had that marriage or that home or that job. Self-pity. It's still pride saying, don't focus on your sins. Blame it on somebody else. You see, pride's greatest goal is for you to avoid taking a genuine look at your own sins. Pride's greatest goal is to cause you to avoid looking at your own sins by forcing you and rebounding that word or that conviction onto something else so that you blame someone else. Pride does not want you to experience guilt. Yet even more than not seeing his own guilt, do you see what the Pharisee did? He just didn't say, look at the moral actions of these people that I'm not like. What did he say? Look again at the text in verse 11. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. And now he puts the attention on himself. But what does he highlight? I fast twice a week. I give of everything that I get. (laughs) Now you can look at me because I am good. See, it focuses on the righteous things that he believes he does. It shines the spotlight of his works on himself. Which is interesting, because if we look at the Bible, we see that our good works are meant for what purpose? To give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So do you see what the, what pride has done in this man's heart? It says conviction and the, the, the glory of the gospel has been to expose our own sinfulness. And he goes, nope, look outward, look at others. And the one thing we are supposed to boast in is that God has done a good work in us. And he says, look at me. I fast, I do these things. What you cannot see that Jesus is not condemning fasting or tithing here. But he's showing you a huge hole in this man's understanding of God and his ways. 
The pride in the human heart loves to tell us that you can produce a righteousness of your own. If we pray more, if I give more, if I serve more, if I obey just a little more, God will love me more. Have you ever said that to yourself? God, you'll love me more. Look at all I've done for you today. And here's the main point. Even if we were to walk as those who fast and give and obey God, you cannot produce a righteousness of your own whereby you will be reconciled to God. You cannot. You are not righteous. And the moment you begin to feel like, I'm pretty good today. That's pride. Shining a focus on your works and and how good you are. But we read the scriptures. We know what Romans 3 says. No one is righteous. No, not one. You can never be good enough to come before God. You cannot. You're never almost there. You see, our sin is way more serious than we believe it to be. In just a few weeks, we'll talk about, well, how many sins does it take for the eternal wrath of God? See, but even our good deeds, they cannot save you. There is no scales in heaven whereby God balances your good deeds against your bad deeds. Pride diverts the attention of self and instead prays out of its own righteousness. God, look who I am. Don't you want me on your team? God, look how amazing I am. Wasn't that the most beautiful prayer you've ever heard? God, look at me. Have you experienced that? I think if we're really honest with ourselves right now in this moment as you're praying what I asked you to pray earlier God show me my pride I think if we're truthfully honest with ourselves right now we see ourselves all over this text I'm such a proud man so quick to deflect my conviction on someone else so quick to say did you hear that sermon That was a good one. And if I'm experiencing this as I stare at God's word, I know you are as well. But what's even worse, and one of the key ways I think to help us see if you are struggling with pride, is is look back at verse 9. He says, as he was told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then and there's an and, right? He says, treated others with contempt. This is crucial. I think this is God's kindness to you to, to help you self-analyze, are you dealing with pride? Because remember, we said pride is what? One of those things is very hard to see in ourselves. And I think what we do is God in his kindness here, he's, he's helping you see there is a way in which you can begin to see if pride is dwelling deep inside your heart. What is it? Are you showing contempt for others. Look at the way he even said it there. 
In the prayer, he says, I'm not like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like, and I can just imagine him pointing his finger at that moment, this tax collector over here. See, he buries his sinfulness and guilt because he wants to feel better about himself. Leading for him to show disgust and contempt for others who he believes are below him. And this is one of the best ways to identify pride in yourself. How do you view the sins of others? Are they worse? I often do this mental exercise to check the pride on my own life. Let's say my family were driving here this morning and somebody drunk from the night before just creamed their van. Killing them all. And he were to come to jail and be prosecuted. And the one thing he asked, hey, I just want to see the dad. I want to see the father. I want, I want to talk to him. I want to see the husband. And he comes to me and, and I can see my children in the eyes of this man and my wife. And he says, I'm sorry. Could I share the gospel with this man right then? Believing the sufficiency of Christ can atone for any sin. If I couldn't, I'm a prideful man. You see, what's the thing keeping you from talking to your neighbor about the gospel? Pride. What's the thing keeping you from leveraging every ounce of your energy to advance God's kingdom? Pride. Pride is a weapon that not only rebounds the conviction of our own life, but it keeps us from declaring the good news of Jesus Christ because they aren't, you know, we don't want that type of a person here at Calvary. Well, they're too far gone. I pray this is not us, and if it is, may God grant us repentance, even now. But there's another prayer in the text, isn't there? I'm so glad there is. Look at verse 13 with me. The prayer for righteousness. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brokenness before God. He doesn't walk to God with his head held high saying, God, look at me. Look at all I've done. I come from a good family. I'm a good person. This tax collector cries out, God, be merciful. This phrase has so much more weight than we think it does. It's not so much him saying, God, be kind to me. It's not so much him saying, God, don't look at me at this moment. It's a cry for forgiveness and atonement. And the tax collector comes with empty hands. This word actually used here, it's only used one other time in the scriptures. Look at the screen or flip with me to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. 
Because I think what it does is this highlights for us this cry of mercy and what it is. A book that we've spent many months in, studied not too long ago. It says in verse 17, I want you to see if you can figure out where the word is that is mercy in his prayer. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Immediately, where do you think the same word mercy is? Mercy. But it's not. It's the word propitiation here. It's the same exact Greek word. It's the only two times it's used in the New Testament. He literally is beating his chest saying, God, I am a sinner and I need a sacrifice and I can do nothing to atone for myself. I'm wicked. I'm more sinful than I even realized at this moment. God, I need a sacrifice to atone for my sin. See, in the back of his mind, he's just not saying, God, forgive me. He's saying, God, I've got nothing to offer. You've got to provide something to forgive me. You've got to provide a sacrifice. This man not only understood the depths of his sin, but he understood his only hope was not in himself. He was broken. He was undone by the weight of his sinfulness and with just... Head to the ground, beating his chest. He said, God, provide sacrifice. He focused on the fact that only God is righteous. And he is not. His sinfulness had unfastened the grip of pride on his heart. Which allowed him to see that the righteousness he needed... He couldn't provide. This is an old Puritan word they used to. Have you been undone by your sin? Have you ever heard that before? Have you been undone by your sin? It's literally this idea that you have so felt the weight and filth and disgust of your own wretched sinfulness that you really honestly understand there's nothing you can do that you need something outside of you to come in to redeem you. This is why we don't water down God's word. This is why we preach not only sin and God's holiness, but that there is a wrath that God will pour out on sin. That no one is righteous, and no, not one. Because there is not a single ounce of goodness in us. Do we truly believe that, church? Have you been undone by the weight of your sin? Or is sin not that serious? This tax collector knew the depths of his sin. And the only hope he had was to be broken before God. And cry out for a sacrifice that he himself could not provide. But I love the way Jesus in his masterful ways of communication. I mean, just imagine in that moment, if you were to read earlier in Luke 17 and 18, you would know, obviously, that there is a multitude of people around them, both tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees. When he's speaking directly to the Pharisees here, and he's saying, do not think you are righteous on your own. 
And he tells them two outcomes. Look at there with me at the text in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. What man? The man who cried out, beating his chest, feeling the weight of a sin, the brokenness of his own humanity, and he just cried out, God, you've got to provide. I can't save myself. Only one person left that temple justified. Why? Because only one man did God truly hear. Job in chapter 35, Job in chapter 35, verses 12 through 13, says this. There they cry out, but he does not answer, he being God, because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Now, this is an interesting, yes, this is when Eliehu is speaking to Job. And, and sometimes they do get some theology mixed up and some misapplication of some of the doctrines of who God is. But here, what's being highlighted is that God does not regard the prayers of prideful people. So if right now you're feeling the weight of your sin, don't try to offer a pride saying, God, well, I'm not that bad. It says he will not regard it. You can't come to God with a few of your good deeds and say, God, forgive me. You can't come to God with your lineage of your pastors. You're part of the pastor's family. You've been part of church. or I mean, years and years. God, I'm coming with my family and my heritage. I mean, I've got a little bit to offer. Pride does not tell God you are broken. Pride tells God, you only need a little bit of help. I'm almost there, God. I just need you to give me that last 4%. Or even that last 99%. See, pride forbids us from being utterly broken by our own sinfulness. And pride tries to justify our sins by absolving the guilt and looking at those things around us. But I'm so glad there's other texts in Scripture, aren't you? Psalm 51 A great psalm that I would encourage you to read through this afternoon. But I love the way it speaks in verses 16 and 17. He says this. For you, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. And I love it. Oh God, you will not despise. This is good news for you right now. That if you come broken over your sin, God hears your prayers and he says, I'm good and I'm merciful. And don't forget the shadow of the end of Luke that says Christ died for those who humbly and broken come to me. David understood the depths of his sin in the psalm. And he says, it's not sacrifice. I I can't bring anything to you, God. And he's just holding his his life in his 
adultery with Bathsheba, and he's just holding it before God, saying, but I'm broken under God. I feel the weight of my sin. I'm undone. You've broken my bones, and I cannot heal myself. So where are you this morning? Is pride trying to rebound God's word at this moment to cause you to look to something else? Are we trying to shift the blame? It's not your wife's fault that you keep looking at inappropriate things. It's your fault. Be broken under it. It's not your fault. Is that what you're saying? It's not your brother or sister's fault in this church that you're struggling with patience with your children. That's on you. But I've got good news. Matthew 18 is not the last part of the book. Is it? See, when we read the Gospels, one of the things I would encourage you to do is we have to read it knowing the end. The shadow of the cross, like, shadows backwards onto this text. So, so look with me at the end of Luke. Specifically, look with me at Luke 23. I want everyone to flip there. This is not going to be on the screens because I want you to be able to set your own eyes on it. Luke 23. Look at verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour of the day, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Your sin was upon Christ. God's wrath was being poured out on Christ. Every sin, every sin of his people was being poured out on Christ in this moment. This is the curtain of the temple was torn in two. You mean you now have access to the Father. Not by any works of righteousness on your own. But only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You have access. You do. But you can't walk in that access with a proud heart. God opposes the proud. But what does it say? He gives what? Grace to the humble. This is our great God. He provided a sacrifice that we could not provide for ourselves. Do you believe in this God? Do you cling to Him with all that you are? Do you believe what we sing in songs? Only to the righteousness I cling. Nothing do I bring. Clothed in Christ's righteousness. Alone. We have no hope on our own. But Christ says, I will provide everything you need. I love the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for he being Christ, became sin. It became your pride. 
the most humble man to ever live, became your pride. Why? So that you might become the righteousness of God and have the mind of Christ and walk in that humility. So as as pride's been rearing its head, you look at your pride and you preach to yourself, I have the humility of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. And by his spirit, he begins to work that deep into you. As much weight as there is in Luke 18 with the pride we see in the Pharisee, there's hope for anyone who is broken and contrite. Christ is that glorious. His work is that sufficient. And his resurrection means we have not just hope of heaven, but hope to be humble today. So may we be those type of people who feel the weight of our sin every day. We recognize a daily life as a life of repentance and utter dependence on a God who says, I have provided and I'm good. Look to me. Would you pray? Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.